Baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Tell me, baby, can you dig your man? Can you get that, sweetie pie? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. If you've been listening to the last few weeks of reviews, you'll know that I've been analyzing what many point to as Stephen King's masterpiece, his epic tale of good versus evil, order versus chaos, set across the backdrop of the fall of America, The Stand. This week, I'm going to be kicking off my review of the 1994 ABC television miniseries adaptation of The Stand. Now, here's my relationship with the miniseries. I had read the novel the previous summer, I believed, so I was pumped, poised, and ready for this miniseries when it came out. For me at that age, it was the equivalent of how I feel now every time there's an upcoming Marvel movie, maybe even more. This was me in my prime King fandom. This movie was designed specifically for me. I remember getting that TV Guide issue with Rob Lowe and uh, Laura San Giacomo on the cover, and I couldn't wait. The movie came out and I soaked up every episode, taping each one on VHS. Now, kids, before we had DVRs and you could record whatever you wanted to and hold on to it for as long as you wanted to before it was available on Blu-ray or Netflix, Amazon Prime, iTunes, or Hulu, you would pop these rectangular, uh, these rectangular uh, objects into a machine that would then record the show that you were watching. That, that was the days of VHS. Now, I taped everything. Someday I'm going to go find my boxes of VHS tapes and find one uh, and just pop it in. Um, not because I want to watch the shows I taped, but I kind of want to see what the commercials are. I mean, there's no better way to time travel than to watch old commercials. Uh, anyway, um, back to the stand. I taped that miniseries and watched it over and over and over again that summer. I've seen parts of the miniseries since then, and I realized that it hasn't really held up. It's a television miniseries that was made in the early 90s, and it feels like a television miniseries made in the early 90s. It was directed admirably by Mick Garris, who does a phenomenal job at adapting the novel very, very faithfully from the text. And I don't know how he managed to oversee the production of this magnitude and wrangle the cast the way that he did. You know, this is a first of a number of Stephen King-related works that Garris would go on to direct, including Quicksilver Highway, Riding the Bullet, Desperation, The Shining, and Bag of Bones. So in the bits that I've seen since the summer of 94, I recognize the work that went into it, but I saw a lot of cheese. I saw the limitations of how a story could be told on television in 1994. I saw a hacky dialogue and cheesy acting. So I knew this moment was coming. I knew I was going to have to watch this movie. Would I be able to see it the way that I saw it when it first came out? Or would I be unable to see past the limitations of its time? So let's find out. But first, let's look ahead at the next incarnation of The Stand, which we'll see when Josh Boone's four-part adaptation arrives on the big screen. Now... In previous, um, in previous episodes, I have talked about the importance of The Stand coming out as a cinematic release. Now, I apologize to anyone that's been listening faithfully to the Stephen King cast. You're going to hear some repetition uh, right now because I've, I've talked about this. Um, the first time I talked about it actually was in the, the Night Shift uh, episode, which has nothing to do with The Stand aside from the fact that there's a short story that... Um, takes place on a uh, an alternate world where Captain Trips decimates the population but I that w I record that episode right around the time that Matthew McConaughey was was announced as a possibility of, of playing Randall Flagg and I, I talked about Randall Flagg for a while in that episode but uh no I mean what when Stephen King was cementing himself I mean not not even necessarily his legacy at that point but just establishing who he was hello my name is Stephen King and this is what I do um you know, he released Carrie. Brian De Palma made Carrie. Um, Sissy Spacek's turn as Carrie is a, is a classic, you know, uh, image that, that stands true um, in, in the genre of horror. Um, he published The Shining. Stanley Kubrick 
made an adaptation of The Shining, and love it or hate it, it is considered a masterpiece and one of the greatest films ever made. And this movie made Jack Nicholson who Jack Nicholson is, and Here's Johnny is one of the most famous lines out of any movie ever made. Um, he published Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot was made into a TV movie, and the image of Barlow as a Max Shrek Nosferatu type vampire is ingrained in our horror consciousness. Um, he wrote The Dead Zone, and David Cronenberg um, went on to direct Christopher Walken, who was coming hot off the heels of an Oscar win for The Deer Hunter just a few, year, few years before, with Martin Sheen um, telling the, the small tale of what a man could do if he if he was able to see in the future and it was a very personal story and the dead zone is very well received um he wrote firestarter and then firestarter gets made into a movie he wrote cujo cujo winds up getting made into a movie he wrote a collection of short stories uh that included children of the corn children of the corn uh was made into a movie and spawned six sequels and a remake so you can see where i'm going with this everything that he touched was adapted into a novel. There's something missing here, and what's missing was his fourth book, The Stand, which really showed his talents and who he was, because leading up to that, he wrote a story about a, a girl in a small town getting bullied. She has telekinetic powers that go awry. He writes a story about a family trapped in an evil hotel and the father is going insane. He wrote a story about um, a small town full of vampires. All right, so he, he was doing either small towns or close examinations of a core group of people. What he had not done until this point was tell a wide-ranging story, epic in scale, an epic it, you know, used the right way, not just as an awesome or, oh my god, it's great, but a, a massive tale with multiple characters taking place over a number of locations with nothing less than the fate of humanity hanging in the balance. This was a big deal for, for Stephen King. Uh, and the reason why I keep bringing this up is because, like I said, De Palma did carry... Um, there was the uh, Salem's Lot miniseries, and then there was Kubrick's The Shining. So Stephen King not only was cementing himself as a literary phenomenon, but he was he had crossover appeal in a way that very few authors have had liter uh, crossover appeal ever, ever. So he was a superstar of his time, just really blazing a path. Um, that allowed for the George R. R. Martins, the uh, John Grishams, the uh, J.K. Rowlings of, of the world. So he was assisted, in a sense, by the cinematic adaptations of his works. And his iconography and his characters were able to take on a life outside of the page because of those cinematic adaptations. And for years, for years, non or, or just uh, not non-book readers, but the book readers, uh, the, the pure Stephen King fans, have always pointed to Randall Flagg as being this amazing character. And it was just unfortunate that that was a character that was limited only to the book readers. The general population didn't know who Randall Flagg was the way that they would know necessarily who Carrie was, who Cujo was, what Christine was, who Jack Torrance was. These characters the general audience knew. But they didn't know Randall Flagg. And that's the one character that they should know because that character is Stephen King's crown jewel of villains, so to speak. So in 1994, the movie comes out. It does well. People watch it. Um, and it has the name Stephen King attached to it. So, I mean, it was, it was a big deal at the time. But it didn't have that same wide-ranging, lasting appeal that a movie would have if it had been made when Stephen King was still cementing himself. The character Randall Flagg didn't really... Um, or the, the Jamie Sheridan version of Randall Flagg didn't really sink into the, the public uh, subconscious the way that Stephen King's other characters did, certainly the way that um, Pennywise the Dancing Clown uh, later would. Um... So that's why this is important. 
because this is an opportunity for what many consider Stephen King's greatest book. Uh, it's an opportunity for this book to finally get that lasting recognition. And leading the charge will be Matthew McConaughey, which is incredible, which is incredible. Like I've said on other podcasts, when it was announced that they were gonna, they were actively pursuing Matthew McConaughey, I, it, like every shorts, every every fuse short circuited in my brain because the casting is so perfect, and I never thought how perfect it was. It was something that never crossed my mind. Now, there's still some people out there that, that say, oh, Matthew Conaghy, I can't see him as Flag. I can see him as Stu Redman. And I think that the people that are saying that haven't seen his most recent works, I think that they've seen, I think that that particular sentiment is being made by people that remember him from, you know, his movies in the early 90s, uh, maybe from his romantic comedies, and haven't seen his turn in... Um, Mud, or specifically True Detective, you see a different side of this character or this actor. You see what he's capable of as as an actor who is just on fire right now. And I can't wait. I cannot wait to see what he's able to do. And he can make Randall Flagg the iconic character that he's supposed to be. So I am very much, very, very much looking forward to it. What's also great about the movie is that it's coming out as the stand is also being made, both movies are. I'm sorry, it it is being made. Um, both movies are in pre-production, um, and it's just a sign of the faith from their respective studios. One Warner Brothers, the other uh, New Line Cinema. Uh, it just the the name Stephen King has recognition again. It one of the reasons why I started the the Stephen King cast was because. I, I think that Stephen King had fallen out of the, the pop culture uh, favor, so to speak. I mean, he he isn't the the he doesn't have the same marketability of of J.K. Rowling or George R. R. Martin. That's who everyone's talking about now. But Stephen King, I mean, his name wasn't even on uh, Mercy when Mercy came out, and that's a movie that could have used the name Stephen King. So I'm. It's great that Stephen King's two. Like the two heavyweights that continually battle it out for supremacy of Stephen King's works, you know, the, the two books that just battle it out for um, the, the honor and distinction of, of being his greatest work, um, are both going to be coming out. I mean, this is it. I mean, and this is the time to be making these movies because we have the effects for them. We have a high expectation for movies to be made now. Um, we can make movies. We can make genre movies and um, have them mean something at the same time. You know, we don't have to have them schlocky or cheesy. So, I mean, there's a lot that we can do. And on top of it, this is recent news. It's recent news as I'm recording this um, by about a week and a half, two weeks maybe, but the, uh, but the Dark Tower has been optioned by Sony. So Ron Howard's production company has finally found a studio that is willing to take on the Endeavor it has been chopped around before, but this time it's official. Sony is going to do it. So, I mean, I'll hold my breath until we start hearing casting, but if if that really gets on the fast track or any track, the slow track, but if it gets on a track going somewhere, uh, then that's it. That's Stephen King's big three right there. That is the stand, that's it, and that's the Dark Tower all moving forward, and that is... that's. You don't get much better than that, and you don't get much more of a sign of faith in the studios. It's it's incredible. Um, but looking ahead towards what can come out of the 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 stand four part feature directed by Josh Boone, I hope that that we we get some stylistic choices here. Um, you know, I I haven't seen the Fault in Our Stars, um, which was directed by Josh Boone. Um, but you know what I don't want? I don't want a slavish adaptation the way that Mick Garris did with his version in 1994. I want things... I, I want someone to look at a scene and be able to say, okay, this worked on the page. Here is what Stephen King was doing on the page. I'm going to invoke the same tone or feeling or message my own way. This is going to be a controversial point that I'm going to make now. I think one of the only directors that has ever ever been able to do that was Stanley Kubrick. He looked at it and said, okay, this is a story about madness. This is a story about 
um, Cabin Fever. This is a story about the toll of alcoholism. This is a story of what happens to families when one of the family members decides to break away from the family unit. Um, and he decided to tell it his own way. Um, so it wasn't faithful in the sense of plot by, you know, point by point within the plot. But to me, the tone, he, he captures an unrelenting, surreal, nightmarish dreamscape. I want that. I want him to be able to capture the, the manic energy of Randall Flagg without necessarily giving us the same scenes that Stephen King did. I want the horror of Larry going through the Lincoln Tunnel without it necessarily playing out the same way because if he's just walking through the Lincoln Tunnel, you're not going to be able to capture the same level of dread and terror that you do in the book because the unknown, Stephen King is able to write the unknown as a threat, whereas Larry just walking through the Lincoln Tunnel in a movie is just a dude walking through a tunnel. Um, so I'm all for changes. I... I am fine if they cut characters. I just don't want a director and a screenwriter to try and shove everything from the book into the movie. And I want someone that's going to be able to stand by those choices. You know, if they, if Josh Boone and his team decide to cut out, um, I don't know, Nick, for instance, and Tom, and say, you know what? They're great characters, but at the end of the day, it's Larry's journey, and Stu is our, you know, he's our everyman. We are going to stick with Larry and Stu and Franny. Um, okay, I, I just do what you will with that and convince me, but I don't need every character that was in the book to be in this movie um, because that could be too much. That could be way too much, uh, even though we have four movies coming out as we saw with the tv miniseries and i'll get to this later on um we have so many characters we pretty much have every character from the book and a lot of characters just get shortchanged because you can't devote the time that's necessary and those are that's a four-part movie just like this is going to be so i'm totally for them cutting characters and having them be background characters you know, King has multiple perspectives, and we don't. I don't think that we necessarily need that in a in a feature film. And I I, I think that in this day and age, if you're going to do a post-apocalyptic tale, the the one thing that needs to be on your mind when you're making it is you need to differentiate it from The Walking Dead, because that's what people are going to compare it to. So you have to definitely make it your own. Um, and this does not have the threat of zombies, so people going into it might feel a little let down. So it needs to be differentiated. One way of doing that um, is everything I talked about, making it stylistic, making it bold, um, making it big. That's one thing that The Walking Dead cannot do. It, it can't be big. You can see the limitations of the of the budget. Um, that's why we're walking through the woods in nearly every episode. Um, so this is a novel that takes place all over the country. So let's film all over the country. Let's really get in there and get some great establishing shots. Um, you know, whoever the, the, the location scout is, um, you know, I don't envy that person, but I'm sure that they'll find a lot of places to show all the different uh, aspects of America. I'm very, very excited about that and, and stand by it. One thing I would love to see is something that we don't ever really see in Stephen King works. Um, Frank Darabont loves doing it, and I'm grateful for that, and I wish that others would. But that's Stephen King Easter eggs. You know, treat it. I hope that Josh Boone treats it in, a, in the way that directors of comic book movies treat their movies. You know, for instance, Kojak. Have Kojak be a St. Bernard. It doesn't matter if he's a golden retriever or not. Just have him be a St. Bernard. People will tune in. They'll understand why. You know, show up Plymouth Fury at one point on the side of the road, or have Larry drive the Plymouth Fury back from California to L.A., um, you know, rather than having it be a government facility, you know, just nameless government facility that, uh, the Project Blue escapes from, have it be the shop, you know, have General Starkey work for the shop. Um, at one point in the background, just show graffiti that says, all hail the Crimson King, you know, have that, uh, eye that, that is on flagstone look like the Crimson King's eye. You know, at one point, have Flag make some sort of hint to the world of the Dark Tower. Um, you know, have him not 
be referred to just as the walking dude, but, you know, have someone call him the man in black at one point. Um, you know, have, you know, mention Castle Rock, mention Derry, you know, show a character, you know, show uh, Glenn um, reading a, a, a George Stark book or a book by Bobby Anderson or Bill Denbro or Ben Mears or Paul Sheldon. Um, you know, show a bumper sticker on a car that reads Greg Stilson for president or even ballsier in the far, far background of a scene, you know, show what looks like a cowboy flanked by a man, a boy, a woman in a wheelchair and what looks like a small dog. That would be insane. People would freak out. In my review of Frank Darabont's The Mist, like I had said, I pointed out they included little Easter eggs that rewarded eagle-eyed fans. You know, from the Gunslinger poster at the very beginning to the My Life For You comment from Mrs. Carmody. And then not only that, I would also extend this idea of Easter eggs and paying tribute to having cameos from the original cast. You know, what better way to pass the torch from one flag to the next than have Jamie Sheridan play Christopher Bradenton, the man who delivered the walking dude with his papers and his car. You know, this is the guy that doctored the name Randall Flagg for the RF character, you know, for the, the ageless stranger. So it would be a fitting tribute for the man who originally brought the character to life. I think that that would be awesome. You know, bring in Gary Sinise to play General Starkey or Miguel Ferrar to play Polk to the new actor playing Lloyd. Um, you know, anything. You know, I, I think that you could go a long way in... I, I just think that these things have not happened in Stephen King adaptations and I think that that would be incredibly fun. And I think that, you know, what you should do, what Josh Boone needs to do here in order to really make it work is cast big all right this is where you can really have like show off the money that warner brothers wants to throw at it you know i mean boone started off strong by casting the most buzzed about actor of the last few years mcconaughey as randall flag and i think that they need to follow suit with the rest of the cast and there's a lot of fan casting out there and here are some casting choices that I've seen from the online community. And like I did with the It movie review, where I kind of looked ahead to the um, Carrie uh, Fukunaga um, movie coming out, I, I just want to be clear that these are not rumors. Uh, these are simply fan casting um, hopes and dreams. So for Stu, I've seen the uh, following characters or the following actors um, listed as potential hopes. Um, Michael Shannon, Mark Ruffalo, Ryan Gosling, um, and the guy that I would like to see, uh, Timothy Oliphant. I mean, that dude's awesome. Actually, um, for years, um, I wanted him to play Flag. Uh, I mean, if, if you've ever seen The Girl Next Door... Um, he is incredible in that movie, and he, he embodies the qualities that you would need in a Randall Flagg. He's charming. He's so charming, and he's funny, but he can turn on a dime to just be vicious and dangerous, and, and that kind of unpredictability, you know, he's, he'd be great at. Um, but he'd also just nail it as Stu, you know, so, I mean, I think that he'd be fantastic. But the thing is, as I was reading the book this time around, I couldn't stop picturing Andrew Lincoln on this reread. Um, it's probably because he plays a similar character in a post-apocalyptic tale, but I, I'm not saying that I would want Andrew Lincoln, but that was in my head, and I'm sure that a lot of people would want Andrew Lincoln to, to play that character. Um, Franny, um, I've seen uh, Brie Larson thrown out there. Um, Elizabeth Olsen, um, I would also put out uh, Anna Kendrick, who I, I think that she hasn't been given that big budget star turn yet, and she definitely deserves it. But if I was a betting man, I would put all of my money down on um, Shailene Woodley. Uh, he, she was the star of this, The Fault in Our Stars, and I think that Josh, it's just one of those things I can see Josh Boone doing, it, casting her. So I, I think that this is going to be uh, Shailene Woodley's movie. 
Nick, um, I've heard uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I don't see that. I really don't see that. I've heard one name that the fans would love to see, and I support 100%. That is Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan is the man. That guy has so much charisma. He has so much talent. He just seems like the world's nicest guy, and you need that with um, with Nick. You know, So someone that can just put you at ease um, just with his posture and his body language and when he flashes a smile – um, and so I definitely think that that Michael B. Jordan could could do that in his sleep. So I, you know, I would love to see that happen. Um, Larry, uh, Oscar Isaac was brought up. I think that Oscar Isaac would be great. He kind of has that Bruce Springsteenish kind of look that I had envisioned every time I read um, the uh, the book. Um, Justin Timberlake, I've also heard. Uh, so, I mean, it, it all depends, really, on what kind of musician we're going to go for here because it's a tough one to cast. I, when when the book was written in 78, that Bruce Springsteen-esque type of rock and roller that Larry Function as doesn't really exist anymore in the current landscape. So will Josh Boone keep him as written or will he be refitted to change with the time? Again... I don't mind if he's refitted. Just stand by your choice. Um, you know, or, or, you know, just stay, whatever you do, make a stand. Um, Glenn, um, I've seen people point to William H. Macy, which I think would be awesome. Um, Mandy Patinkin, which would be great. Terry O'Quinn, which would be great. Any of those guys would knock Glenn out of the ballpark. Tom, um, Two names that, that popped out. I've heard Jesse Plemons, um, who's really good, um, but I just don't see him uh, as as this. But the dude that I think would be great, John C. Riley. I mean, tell me that he wouldn't be great as Tom. He would also make a great Ralph. Uh, Mother Abigail, I um, everyone that I see says Cicely Tyson, so I'll just go with what everyone says. Lloyd. Um, Lloyd is interesting here. Um, I have heard Michael Shannon, um, Sam Rockwell, um, and maybe I've missed, misread the text, but I was pretty sure that Lloyd was a younger criminal, kind of dumb. You know, I mean, so when Lloyd gives himself over to Flag, Flag he acknowledges that Flag did something to his mind and kind of smartened him up like a supernatural flowers for Algernon. Um, the Lloyd in the book, this time on the reread, I, I just kept thinking that he was an evil Jason Stackhouse. So I think that Ryan Quanten would nail it in this role. The Trash Can Man, um, I, I've seen Casey Affleck, Jackie Earl Haley, Andy Serkis. Um, they've all popped up on a lot of those lists. Um, and Nadine, two names popped out. Um, Eva Green is one. I think that that's the safest choice. Um, the other one is Emily Blunt, um, who I think, nothing against Eva Green, but I think that Emily Blunt would bring a lot more compassion to that role, whereas Eva Green, I think, would... And, and I'm just kind of typecasting her right now. I, I just think that she would just play her kind of as a real seductress without that tragic quality. Um, and I've heard, uh, for Harold, you know, some people have said Miles Teller, but I think that when it comes to that particular character, you go unknown. And I think that they need to cast a legit 16 year old. Um, and I don't think that the character needs to be an effective actor. You know, if he wasn't a good actor, I think that that would support the character himself because he needs to be insufferable. So if you have someone reading the lines that Stephen King has written for Harold, which typically I would say that just get a different screenwriter because Stephen King dialogue doesn't work outside of uh, the written page. But if you had Stephen King, the the actual words that Stephen King wrote for Harold, written you know read by someone that doesn't really know how to act, it would only go to reinforce that aggravating, grating quality of Harold. Um, the sensation of Harold needs to be more important than the character of Harold. Um, so that's just looking ahead. Those are some of my hopes and dreams. Now what I'm going to do at 30 minutes into the review, I'm going to start with, um, I'm going to go back and here we go. I'm going to review the, the 1994 Mick Garris directed 
the stand. So just to repeat, because I just I can't make this point enough, the fact that it took the stand so long to come out, it's a huge blind spot in the list of King adaptations. As soon as he started churning out books, beginning with, Car- with Carrie, his, his adaptations began hitting the big screen. De Palma's Carrie went a long way in solidifying his stature. Salem's Lot was adapted into a, to a po- two-part miniseries um, whose uh, Barlow has become iconic in the world of horror. The Shining, of course, under Stanley Kubrick's direction, made a superstar out of Jack Nicholson, you know, and it became one of the greatest films ever made. Um, so when those books came out, the next point of publication after Shining was The Stand. Um, and it so it should have made sense that the next movie should have been The Stand, but it never happened. And then the adaptations continued afterwards with The Dead Zone, with Firestarter, Cujo, the list goes on. But The Stand, having never been made during those early years when King was building his legacy, leaves a huge hole in his collection and in the pop culture tapestry. So many of his characters have been brought to life through iconic performances. Carrie, Margaret White, Jack Torrance, Giant Smith, John Rainbird, Cujo the St. Bernard, Judd Crandall, Pennywise the Dancing Clown, many more. There's a huge name missing from that list, and that's Randall Flagg. With the greater pop culture landscape, Flagg doesn't have the same weight as his rival for top dog status, Pennywise the Dancing Clown, because... I think that there was never a corresponding movie that came out closer to the original publication. And I will continue to say this again and again, nothing against Jamie Sheridan's performance. I'm going to speak about him in greater detail later on, but his Randall Flagg just did not strike the same chord as other King villains, especially Tim Curry's Pennywise. With that said, the TV miniseries was a pretty big deal in 94, and I'm pretty sure it was a hit. You know, it doesn't have a here's Johnny or... You know, when you're down here with me, you'll float too moment. But people seem to like it. Now, it opens up to a barbed wire and a mesh fence. Western music twangs over a government sign while an ominous crow perches nearby. And then Stephen King's The Stand flashes on screen. Great choice to start with that crow. Representing death and flag himself, it foreshadows the end. We're given an establishing shot of the military base and the families going about their day before the warning alarm goes off. In the first of our Stephen King Easter eggs, we see Deputy Norris Ridgwick himself, Ray McKinnon, as Charles Campion, who's stationed at the post while he hears the loudspeaker announce that there's been a containment breach. And when I say Easter eggs, it's like a retroactive Easter egg, even though Needful Things had not come. I don't believe it had come out at that point yet. Um... But so for the acting Easter eggs that, I, that I'm going to call Easter eggs, these are actors that have appeared in multiple King works. So we start off with one guy that has appeared in at least two King um, adaptations. Now in the novel, Campion's escape was accidental. He just happened to see a blinking red light, and by all accounts, he should have died in that compound. Here, however, the conflict is explicitly presented as his superiors order him to close the base. He chooses his family and escapes. Now, so far, it's pretty ho-hum. The establishing shot of the crow is a nice visual. When Campion escapes, the camera lingers on the vacant post. And this is, this is good what they do here. It's a haunting image, and the camera slowly pans in to the video feed where we are given the footage of the dead bodies within the, the compound. And famously, Blue Oyster Cult's music starts playing. It's such a great decision on Mick Garris's part to use this song. It's not entirely his idea. I mean, King includes the chorus in the opening section of the novel, but it's not hard to imagine that Stephen King's superfan Mick Garris, the director, read that and heard the song playing out in his head as the story went on. The opening to this miniseries is probably the most recognizable part of the eight hours, and deservedly so. Don't fear the Reaper's content and the visuals presented on the screen fit perfectly with one another. All the dead bodies present for a memorable and horrible series of images. It's clear that Captain Trips came on quick, killing them almost instantly. Some are piled up by the doors, some simply drop dead. The camera pans out, and we once more see the crow, the visual reminder of the coming of the Dark Man. Just as we did in the book, we cut to East Texas, to Haps, and with the gang hanging out, drinking beer, slapping each other's back, and giving each other a hard time. It's the first time we see Gary Sinise's stew, who figuratively and literally stands apart from the rest of them. There are small differences here from the book. One, it takes place at night in the rain. It adds a little bit of extra drama, though. It masks the setting of East Texas, I'd say. 
Stu immediately demonstrate his heroic qualities right off the bat, first by shutting off the pumps, secondly by taking care of the dying campion. Right away, right away, they mention Flag, spoken by a dying campion who states that there was a grinning man in the rearview mirror. It's a nice touch. Um, it's super creepy. We're then introduced to General Starkey, played by Stephen King Easter Egg Number 2, Ed Harris, who co-starred in Needful Things with Campion himself by playing Sheriff Alan Pangborn. I can't wait to get to Needful Things, by the way, both the book and the movie, for a few reasons, but one of them is because I'll watch anything with Ed Harris. You know, in fact, I think that a younger Ed Harris could have played a solid stew. Stu Redman and Alan Pangborn, by the way, would have been good friends. Um, now, as I was watching this, what's funny... While watching this scene, the entire time I was watching Ed Harris, I thought that he looked exactly like Mark Strong, who would do a great job in this role. Starkey is already a man becoming unglued. We meet him swilling whiskey. His uniform is unbuttoned. He's a man that understands what's going to happen, possibly the only man that truly understands what's going to happen, so naturally it's already taking a toll on him. Oh my god we are given a glorious reenactment of a type of 90s commercial, in this case, the fictional Flu Buddy. The movie is worth watching for these 10 seconds alone. And then we're treated to a cameo from Joe Bob Briggs, playing a character named Joe Bob, as the state trooper who warns Hap that the soldiers have begun uh, to come to Arnett. Now, if the name Joe Bob Briggs doesn't mean anything to you, um, what he means to me, well, Joe Bob Briggs, um, uh, his real name escapes me at the time, but he was a film critic, very, very funny, um, and he would specialize um, in horror, and that wound up uh, leading to a job um, where he was the host of Monster Vision, which ran on TNT on Saturday nights starting maybe 10, 11. Um, so he would host two movies back-to-back, -back, and he would sit by... Um, so he would sit outside, sit by his camper or his trailer, um, and introduce the movies and crack jokes. He was hilarious, and he was the last of the horror movie hosts that I grew up with, um, in my youth. Um, that doesn't exist anymore. Once upon a time, guys, if, if you're too young for this, Saturday mornings, um, late at night, um, you would turn on the television and rather than just having the station play a movie you would have people host the movie so after commercial breaks uh you would check in with the host of the movie who would kind of talk about what we've just seen catch us back up uh, maybe throw in some trivia and then continue with the movie and you know sometimes they the the, the host of the the horror ones or the sci-fi ones were in character they were mad scientists um it was a lot of fun it was a good time it's something that i missed and joe bob briggs is he's the one that that i remember the the most fondly so it was a nice um nice little cameo to see him there it brought back a lot of good movies um or good memories uh Oh my god, one thing I just don't remember about this book, though, uh, or this movie that has nothing to do with good memories is this music. I, 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 I am having such a hard time focusing on this movie with the music being what it is. It's, just all, it's all steel twangs and, and, and awful electric guitar riffs. It just really cheesifies the big moments, like the military quarantine of Arnett. It's an incredibly important scene. Also because it's one that isn't shown in the book. We got flashbacks to it in the book, but the immediacy of the takeover and the abduction of the townsfolk is a powerful moment. It's the first time we see our civil liberties being taken away from us. And the music that, that is included here just really under it just undermines it. We cut from Arnett to New York at this point with our introduction to Larry. Now, every time I read the book, and I'm, I've read it multiple occasions at this point, I always wonder what Baby Can You Dig Your Man will sound like. I can never really formulate a tune in my head, but I do know that it wouldn't be what the movie gives us. That song would not be a hit, that's for sure. So let's talk a little about Larry. I mean, he's an incredibly nuanced character in the book, and, and nothing against the actor, but there's something that feels very, very one-dimensional about him. He's petulant, for one, far more childish. 
And I see the relationship between his mother and him. Uh, it's close to the book, but it misses the mark. And there's then there's his accent. I, I don't know if it's supposed to sound New York, but it just kind of comes across as sounding like a generic city accent mixed with, I don't know, New Jersey. And I don't know, may, maybe the actor Adam Stork, this is what he sounds like. I don't know. I, I just, something about it just didn't ring true. And maybe that's my bad. I don't know. Um... But the character in the movie is just more obsessed with making it big than his novel counterpart, who by the time he ran back to New York had on some level accepted that it just wasn't going to work out for him. After a check-in um, with our, our net captives, uh, we meet Franny. Um, actually, we, before we meet Franny, uh, we meet Harold, played by um, Parker Lewis himself, Um and it's a fun introduction to our characters with Franny's father throwing Franny under the bus. Um, and it's effective scene in showing, not telling, the relationship between these two. It does make things a little coincidental that they're the only two characters in Agonquit that survive, but it's worth it to see the way that Franny keeps casting looks at her father when Harold asks her out. Franny and her father spend a tender scene while Hallmark movie music plays in the background um and a change from the book is the fact that franny's mother has died seven years before it's a change that allows for a quicker pace to the story but it cuts down on the familiar conflict that makes the franny scenes so tense with that said at the very beginning of the episode i did say make a stand make a choice and stand by those choices so i congratulate mcgarris for for making that cut we soon meet nick who is our easter egg number three rob lowe Rob Lowe appears here as Nick, as well as in the TNT Salem's Lot remake, um, playing Ben Mears. After being beat up and thrown to die under the wheels of a car, Nick dreams of Mother Abigail. And rather than cleverly demonstrate that he can now hear and talk, Rob Lowe blurts out exactly what's happening by screaming, I can hear, I can talk. And if that wasn't enough, he repeats it to Mother Abigail, the exposition machine. I, I had never realized just how on the nose uh, that bit is until I read um, a review of The Stand on the AV Club. So if you want a, a pretty scathing review of uh, this, this four-part miniseries, I would Google... AV Club, The Stand Review, and whoever wrote it, I don't know who wrote it off the top of my head, um, they really pinpoint the failings uh, and trappings of this movie um, in a way that, that I can't. Um, but that, that part there, how just on the nose it is when he screams exactly what's happening, um, it just, it really made, it kind of opened my eyes in some ways. Um... With all that said, I, I do believe that there is there's an effective scare in this scene, at least for me, anyway. When it cuts to the scarecrow in the corn, um, and and what happens is there's a scarecrow in the corn that we know we've seen him, and it's it's creepy. It's and the scarecrow is flag, and then Nick is in the corn, and all of a sudden there's a a hand that just comes down on his shoulder. Nick turns around, and the scarecrow is there, and just screams in his face. Boom! He wakes up. Very, very effective. Uh, and then we meet the sheriff, um, and it's, it's it's just not a great scene. The dialogue seems very forced. And cutting back to Stu, uh, he's confronted by Dr. Dietz, the condescending, smug doctor. And the entire time, I couldn't help but wonder about the po poor choice of wearing that hazmat suit with a zipper that can easily have been unzipped by a grouchy patient. But I guess if you're not smart enough to think that a superflu is a good idea, then you're probably not smart enough to design a protective hazmat suit. Okay, now, now wait a minute here. Okay, I, I, this was driving me nuts. I had to rewind it a couple times. When we cut back to New York, we get a newscaster reporting the latest update on the flu. And like I said, I had to rewind, but is that Jeff Goldblum? I mean, it doesn't sound much like him in the beginning, but by the end of this announcement, I'm pretty convinced Anyway, if it's a New York scene, it means that it's a Larry scene, which means that it's just not going to be the best. Um, we get a one-two punch here of over-the-top characters. Three, if you count Larry himself. First, the Rat Man, barely a character in the books, is brought to life. Um, and it's, when I say brought to life, it's larger than life. Um, and I'm really digging it. And I'm not joking. I, I really like the Rat Man. 
And then we get Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the monster shouter. And in my mind, in my interpretation, the way that I'm going to view this, this is not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar playing the monster shouter. This, to me, is just going to be that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the monster shouter. And that whenever anyone sees him, they're just like, oh, God, here comes Kareem Abdul-Jabbar again. I'm just going to get kind of get away. Um, and then we meet Lloyd, played by Miguel Ferrar. Now, here's the deal. Um, being the major RoboCop and Twin Peaks fan that I am, I am never going to say a bad word about Miguel Ferrer. Um, he's also my favorite part of Deep Star 6, one of three movies that rounded out the late 80s underwater alien movies, the other two being The Abyss and Leviathan. Now, whenever I think about rising to the surface um, of the water too quickly... I always think of Deep Star 6 because, spoiler alert, in case you haven't seen the movie, um, in an attempt to escape, um, and so basically what's happening is that they're in some sort of sub, you know, underwater station at the bottom of the ocean, and there's an alien in there killing everybody. Um, and in an attempt to escape, uh, Miguel Ferrer's character abandons his fellow crew members and steals away in a shuttle that shoots him from the bottom of the ocean far too quickly than the cabin can pressurize. Blood starts running out of his nose, and then his veins start popping, and there's nothing he can do to stop it. Um, it's such an effective scene, and it just like really stuck with me as a kid. My point is, Miguel Ferrer is awesome, and nothing against him. I think he's miscast here as Lloyd Henreid. The way that I, and I just reread it, I just reread the book. In my interpretation here, Lloyd was a dumbass young guy who was completely coked up and over his head at all times. One thing that Miguel Ferrer can't play is dumb. The man has a constant look of shrewd intelligence in his eyes. Now, I'm not going to complain that he's in the movie, and I'm not going to say that he does a bad job as Lloyd, because he's good. I just don't see that being the character that I thought that Lloyd was. And his introduction presents us with the world's worst shootout that's staged like a high school play. At one point, a customer has just shot Poke, and after Lloyd tries to fire but can't because his gun is empty, the customer just stands there. Not for any reason, but because his character is simply written to stand there. And Lloyd's response is to hurl the gun at the guy who continues to just stand there and lets the man who gunned down a few people run out of the store. I don't know. Maybe the character's decision to stand there was foreshadowing to the ultimate stand of our main characters we'll have to make later. As Lloyd's arrested, Mick Garris includes something that wasn't in the book, and I really like it. He spots Randall Flagg perched atop a telephone pole. Outside the Scarecrow dream sequence, this is the first time we actually see Flag. We don't see him for long, and through Lloyd's perspective, so he's in the distance. When we cut back, um, it's not anyone sitting on the telephone pole, but rather the, the crow is perched where Flag had been. So, I mean, there's moments in this movie where Mick Garish isn't slavishly shackled to King's original work, um, and these moments stand out as creepy and they're memorable. Um, and this is definitely one of those times. It's, it's too bad that more of these choices weren't made to bring the book to life. You know, rather we were given faithful recreations of dialogue and chapter scenes that play out faithfully in between commercial breaks. Now we cut back to Ed Harris and it's clear that Starkey is going loco. He's completely wearing away from the pressure and, you know, he understands the, the gravity of the situation. Um, and it's just a great little touch. He's just uh, obsessing over the Hungarian goulash that the scientists died in within the compound. We check back in with the ageless Rob Lowe, uh, who is 20 years younger than he is right now, but by wearing the khakis pulled up to approximately his clavicle, he looks 20 years older than he does right now. You know, in fact, he actually looks like one of those direct TV Rob Lowe characters who foolishly subscribe to cable. Hi, I'm Rob Lowe, and I'm 90s Rob Lowe. Take, for instance, um, sorry, well, one of the problems uh, with trying to tell every aspect of the story is that you just can't tell it well. Like Larry and his mother. The novel spends enough time so that we can understand the complex relationship between the two. Now, this relationship is critical to the novel because it informs us so much of who Larry is. We're only given two scenes with the mother, 
And the one in which she's dying is only there to show her dying. It doesn't have much weight, and it doesn't help inform the character of Larry. And in her delirium, she mentions the Dark Man, which now makes for the second character to say this to Larry. Now, that's one character too many. I think that King and Garrus are, are laying it on a little thick here. I mean, this is starting to creep into Larry is the one territory, which isn't the Larry character and takes away from the other survivors of the plague, all of whom could have been, you know, one of the, the people to, to head on over to... Um, to Las Vegas in the end. I mean, Larry just happened to be one of the ones who was chosen, but he wasn't the chosen one, as if he was Luke or Neo. Now, back in Shoyo, after Nick is forced to shoot Ray after another poorly staged fight scene, Rob Lowe demonstrates a very nice in-character moment. I mean, he just delivers this existential wail, and he can't speak, but that doesn't mean that he can't scream. And the moment that he's screaming, he's screaming for everything that's happened to the world. And we have Easter egg number four, Annie Wilkes herself. Kathy Bates plays the radio DJ who is brave enough to deliver the truth to the masses. Franny and her father listen with the growing unease as the story plays out over the air. Now this, of course, culminates with the execution of Kathy Bates. After a brief check-in with the monster shouter, the camera cuts to a lonely road at night. A silhouetted figure strolls down the middle of the street. I can't really put into words the excitement that I felt when I was a kid watching this scene for the first time. It's him. It's Randall Flagg. He's making his first real appearance here. Though I haven't liked how many times they've been referencing him, it's a bit heavy-handed, it has helped to establish the danger of this character. The legend has grown. So the audience, even if they're unfamiliar with the novel counterpart, should feel a little excited at this point. His first words, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, is perfect for our character and is very much in line with his dark charm. He demonstrates his power by causing the monster shouter to die of a sudden heart attack half a country away. Stu walks through the soundstage corn to meet Mother Abigail. It segues into a cornball scene in the corn that, despite its cheese factor, ends with a pretty effective jump scare when the flag scarecrow um, grabs Stu and screams in his face. So I'm sorry. Um, that is the scene where the scarecrow um, does what I said earlier. Earlier, the scarecrow was simply there's a creepy scarecrow in the corn, and he's creepy. This is the second time we see the scarecrow. This is when the scarecrow grabs um, the character and screams in his face. Really effect. I just I really really like it. Now that Stu is awake, he must fight for his life in Stovington. Um, and there's the struggle with the sick doctor. Um, Stu manages to get out. He escapes into the night. And part one concludes. Part two, we open to Franny uh, singing Amazing Grace as she prepares to bury her father. Molly Ringwald does an effective job at selling this scene. Now, like I said earlier with Larry, there weren't a lot of scenes between Larry and his mother, and likewise, there weren't a lot of scenes between Franny and her dad, but there's something more genuine about the fallout of his death. Harold swings by and helps Franny, which is a departure from the books. Later, Harold and Franny share some lemonade in Franny's living room. And uh, Harold, uh, the smooth operator that he is, decides that this is the best time to ask Franny out um, the night that she's had to bury her father. Uh, unsurprisingly, Franny shuts him down, but she does so very nicely and puts on a crowded house record. As Don't Dream It's Over plays over the establishing shots of the dead world, Franny lays her head on Harold's knee. The two characters have more of a tender moment in this short scene than the entirety of King's novel. It also establishes the difference between the movie Franny and the book Franny. Movie Franny is a lot more accepting of Harold. She feels bad for him and doesn't want to hurt his feelings. Now, the AV Club uh, review that I had mentioned, um, I believe off the top of my head, they really criticized the decision to include Don't Dream It's Over. I disagree. If you have listened to my, um, I think it's part three of my stand review uh, of the book, I include the I include the song um, as the opening and closing um, to the episode. I, I think that it, it works, and I think that it's as memorable for the movie as Don't Fear the Reaper was. 
Larry then meets Nadine, who is now a mashup of Nadine and Rita, which doesn't work. The mashup between the two characters, it really ruins the Nadine purity. Uh, they have a very brief moment that is strangely Lynchian, and what I mean is David Lynchian. Um, when they first meet, Larry just leans in and sniffs Nadine's perfume and has a very sexual uh, reaction to it. Nadine then just leans in, I don't think she even says anything, leans in and just gives the creepiest laugh. Um, it's just a strange, weird moment between the two characters. Now, I get why they blended Rita and Nadine. Um, I mean, there's only so many characters that we can introduce, so only so many minutes to spend. So I, I do get it. I do understand it. Um, however, by attributing Rita's qualities onto Nadine's personality, it really weakens Nadine's character. I mean, after all, Rita was a weak character who wound up killing herself by overdosing on sleeping pills. So leading up to that, King had to show us the weakness of her character. It led to the death of one character so that it would have a monumental effect on Larry. Throughout the entirety of the movie, Nadine never feels like Nadine to me. And because the death of Rita, of the death of the character isn't there, it doesn't have an effect on the character. The point of Rita is so that Rita dies so it can haunt Larry in his journey across the country. Um, I really hope that the theatrical adaptation fixes that. I don't think you even need the Rita character. You don't. I mean, sure, it's good. Like you, okay. Like, like Larry feels awful about how he treated her, and you know he starts to become a little bit calloused after. There, there's a lot that goes into that Rita character. But if you take her out, it's going to be fine. But I just don't want to see that blending of the two characters again. We then meet the trash can man brought to manic life by Matt Frewer, who you can tell is throwing everything into the role. It's a manic performance. Yeah, it's way over the top. It probably doesn't help that the soundtrack is ridiculous. Now, with all of that said, there's a great moment where the disembodied voice of Flag speaks to trash. And we get a, shout, uh, a shot of a devout trash with the burning tanker over his shoulder. It's a good look. It's nicely staged. We spend some time with Mother Abigail herself, who encounters Flag in the corn. Made me realize that while it's interesting to make her a down-to-earth character in the book, it does not work in the movie. And I think that she'd function much better in the movie if we don't see her outside of the dreams. So the first time we see her would be when Nick arrives, or whatever character they, they make the decision to, to follow, arrives and sees that she's actually a person. I think that that would work and it would cut down on some of the time. Because just a character, anytime you have a character just sitting and stand and talking to the high heavens, literally, and talking to God, um, to me, it never works. And now we meet Flag paying a visit to Lloyd. Um, Jamie Sheridan plays Flag with charming glee. Now, interestingly enough, uh, when he introduces himself to Lloyd, he actually says, pleased to meet you, hope you guess my name. You know, it's a fun wink at the role um, that he functions as within this story. And then he goes on to provide an actual name that he clearly makes up on the spot. So, I mean, it's a, it's a fun little moment with Sheridan seemingly having a ball with this character. He springs Lloyd from the joint, and there's a definitive moment where Lloyd soul, sells his soul. The two head off to start some trouble, and we segue to Larry and Nadine, and the scenes between the two of them just do not work. They have a spat. Larry heads into the Lincoln Tunnel. It's one of the more famous scenes from the book, um, and he's plunged into absolute darkness here, um, but there's, there's a threat that's missing that's in the book. And another thing that's missing is any likability with either Larry or Nadine. Thankfully, Stu and Glenn um, meet each other, and much like their novel counterparts, they hit it off right away. Their friendship is one of the foundational stones in the book, and their banter in the movie feels very natural and friendly. I immediately want to spend more time with them, but goddammit, we're forced to endure another Larry Nadine scene. They're pretty hot and heavy, and then Larry gets a little rapey. Um, not a lot, but just a little... 
Again, the combination between the Nadine and Rita characters severely weakened this representation of the character. She's very, very fragile in a way that Nadine never was, and that's the problem. The character's name is Nadine. She follows Nadine's arc. She's sadly saddled with the worst aspect of Rita. As a character, the television Nadine is kind of a mess. In her dream, Flag orders her to leave Larry, a completely new aspect to the story. It drew me in, though, because it's a little uncharted territory for book readers. We cut away, and we meet our next character, and that's M-O-O-N spells Tom, played by Bill Fagerbach, or Bill Fagerbach. Um, I, I don't really know how to pronounce his last name, because to me, he's always going to be Dauber from Coach. Now listen, while I'm on it, he had better, better be in the Coach reboot, or the, the, the next season of Coach. I'm telling you right now, if there's no Dauber, we riot. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the 90s, the great 90s sitcom Coach starring um, Craig T. Nelson is coming back. So I want Dauber there. No Dauber, we riot. Now the look on Rob Lowe's face when Tom tells him that he can't read is priceless. I mentioned the importance of the Glenn and Stu friendship, but just as important, probably more important, is the friendship between Nick and Tom. There has never been a more tender and kind-hearted pair than these two, and it wouldn't work unless we completely bought Tom as a character. And that is a character I feel is nearly impossible to pull off, but I'm telling you, he nails it. He naturally conveys the sincerity and childlike wonder of the character. He and Nick instantly strike up a friendship, and it's great to watch. It's a highlight of the series so far. Stu and Glenn decide to head out to Nebraska to find the woman of their dreams, and Glenn insists on getting a sidecar for Kojak, a welcome departure from the books. Just as soon as they start to get into the conversation, Franny and Harold arrive. Harold's just being a dick to be a dick, uh, which is a line from Wanderlust if you haven't seen it, and demands to go to Stovington despite what uh, Stu had told him. In Kansas, Nick and Tom encounter Julie, Julie Laurie. Right away, we can tell that she's awful. She's just so caustic, it's hard not to grow worried about what will happen next. It's a difficult scene to watch, because she just makes fun of Tom and makes him think that he's drinking poison. You know, in a dead world, the choice to be that cruel to people is a bigger sign of evil than Flag himself. And then we meet Ralph who's played by Peter Van Norden, an actor I've never seen before. And this guy captures the good-hearted nature of this particular character, um, who was never one of the A-listers in, uh, in the book and is easily forgotten. And then, Jesus, Larry, I, he's just sitting on a car playing Eve of Destruction. You know, this character is so enamored with himself, and I think that that's my problem with the character. Here, I think he finds himself amusing. He has bought into himself. That's not Larry. Which is why it never feels right to me. The entire novel could be interpreted as the character's coming to term with himself set against the backdrop of the apocalypse. Without that arc, the character just feels wrong. So when he was a jerk in the book, that was always offset by his deep guilt. Here, he's a jerk and in love with himself. Big difference. He meets uh, Lucy and Joe. Again, we're merging characters here. In the novel, Nadine and Joe met up with Larry and Lucy came later. It makes sense that if you're going to combine Rita and Nadine, then you just might as well have Lucy arrive with Joe in tow. They have a great uh, setup for Trash Can Man as they discuss the fact that Des Moines is burning. You know, it's a great reintroduction to the character who has now been promoted to a pyromaniac, yeah, but one of the best examples of how we're living in a post-apocalyptic world. He has now set an entire city on fire. It's little details like that that make this story so awesome. And now he's staggering through the desert with a mummified face that just seems to be peeling off of his bones from the intense desert sun and lack of water. It shows the perseverance of this character and also really good job um, on the special effects crew. I'm going to slam the, the digital effects, but the practical effects, the bodies, the, everyone that has the super flu, um, flags demon face i don't like it but i i don't like what they do with it but i mean the design itself i guess is effective i just don't think it's appropriate here so all of the practical effects i'm totally down for nick and uh his gang make it to hemingford home and i realize that whenever i see the guy playing ralph 
I could very easily see Jerry Gergich playing a character, um, or Larry Gergich, or Gary Gergich. Uh, I don't know where we left off on that one. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about uh, Parks and Recreation. Um, and if you don't know what Parks and Re Recreation is, then shame on you. Uh, it is a simply wonderful show, and it's all available on Netflix, so there's really no excuse. So if you have not watched Parks and Recreation, just stop listening now. Head on over to uh, Netflix and watch every single episode if you haven't seen it. It literally stars Rob Lowe. Um, he doesn't wear his pants tucked up that high, um, but I think that we can forgive him. Uh, we pack up Mother Abigail and head away from Hemingford home. Now, Mick Garris and Ruby D convey the well of emotions without having to say anything when Ralph drives away. Um, Mother Abigail takes one last lingering look at the home that she spent her entire life um, living in, and I buy it. I buy the emotion in this particular scene. And we make a wonderful transition to the bright lights of Las Vegas. Uh, Trash wanders the streets and then throws himself into a fountain to cool down. And like I said, the makeup of his sunburn is so effective. Like, I can feel how relieving that water must feel on his skin. And then Nick and Mother Abigail arrive in Boulder. Um, Boulder, Utah, because it does not look like um, Colorado. Uh, and witness a line of cars and motorcycles coming to follow them. The second part ends with Mother Abigail invoking the name um, of the movie uh, and a prayer to God. Okay, everyone, I have to put a pin in it right there, but I will um, not be releasing the second part to this next week. Basically, what I did is that I, I recorded all of this and then I tried to upload it, but it was it was too long, so I just had to just split it, and I thought that right after part two was a perfect time to split it in half, so... Um, so the second part was released on the same day, so all you need to do is head on over um, to either iTunes or Podbean or, or wherever you get it from and just click on listen to part two. So stop listening to me right now and head on over to part two. I'll see you there. Baby, can you dig your mouth? He's got a righteous glance. Baby, can you dig your mouth? I don't think you're singing that just right.